0: The O'Haley show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome to the program. Caregiver
1: Dave and the Sandy. Dave, what's going on? How are you? How you doing? I'm doing good. Just can't wait to get to Pittsburgh. Philadelphia is where I'm going.
0: Yeah, you're not going to Pittsburgh. You're going to Philadelphia. We're talking about why Philadelphia. I love Pittsburgh, and you know why? Because I'm a Pittsburgh guy. And and yesterday, we're excited to talk with her. She's going to have some really good, interesting conversation. I'm excited to welcome the program actress florencia lozano you know from narcos and one life to live and we're going to talk about life after you florencia thanks for coming by how are you
2: oh thank you so much for having me i'm great
0: all right so let's talk about it did you always want to be an actress one was that something you always dreamed of?
2: yes yeah i remember being on stage in third grade and we were doing a musical of the emperor's new clothes i was the head villain and i remember the feeling of um applause when the audience applauded us at the end feeling like this light coming into my body being like i need this adoration like i it's just that's uh shameful perhaps but uh but i i really love um i love performing and getting that love from the audience i was also the youngest of three daughters and it felt like the only stage was the only place where i could um just <laughs> yeah. sort of express myself you know what i mean Yeah, absolutely. I was- with my sisters for airtime. I, I was younger, so I didn't know as much. I wasn't as fast, you know, I wasn't as um, uh, grown up. So I felt like the only place I really had to shine was was on stage.
0: And, and you had to shine in front of your family too. So that's the funny thing. You, you had to figure out ways of, uh gaining attention being the youngest. Yes. And even though you do get a lot of attention as the youngest, you still want more and you figure out ways of doing it,
2: right? Yeah, totally. And I was also kind of the the clown in my family, like the one who was trying to just make everybody take things a little less seriously. Um, you know, my parents are immigrants, um, didn't have a lot of money growing up and they were, they were really, you know, struggling to give us a better life. So they were you know kind of serious and um, and I just loved to see them smile so I would entertain you know So, so right. Florencia
1: um, did your parents know that you had this gift and were very supportive and did your siblings also have the gift or or were they jealous of you? I mean how, what was the family dynamic going on? When it first was evident that you were going to go in this direction,
2: my parents were really supportive, um, and I, I realized now, you know, so many of my friends didn't have that, and and that's that's a huge thing to have parents. You know, my dad, uh, my dad was an architect, and he he would always say, you know, do what you love, mm. um, and that. I took it for granted at the time, you know, but now I really am so grateful that he wanted, he pointed us in the direction of what we love to do. Um, My sisters are are not uh, in in my field. Um, One is a pediatrician um, who specializes in public health. uh, And the other works for um, the DA so she's a prosecutor um so very very different um uh career choices um and they were always um supportive of me um you know my my, the middle sister i was only a year and a half younger than her and i think she was you know i was always very kind of like clinging to her and wanting to be in her shadow and she was my big sister and i kind of worshipped her and she was like Oh God! What a pain in the ass this one. You know what I mean? She wanted her independence, and but um, yeah. But they 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 always protected me. You know, like older sisters do.
1: Sure. How did uh, I don't know where Neil went? I can't see him. <laughs> you see
0: me, Dave?
1: Oh, there you go. Uh, go ahead, Dave. I'm going to
0: go to my next question for Florencia. Uh, you know, when you think about specifically enough, what age did you decide this is going to be for you? So you always wanted to, what age did you decide, okay, acting is what I want to do. And I'm going to go full force. This is going to be my, what my career is.
2: I can't ever remembering, uh, remembering a time where I didn't know that this was what I was going to do. I just, um, before I, I, I don't even know how old I was. You know that commercial, that Angelie commercial with the woman with the dishwashing gloves. I can bring home the bacon, Angelie. I don't know if you guys remember this, but she was okay. stripped off the dishwashing gloves, okay. yeah. right. And it never like I I had no idea what that meant, but I performed. I would perform that for my, you know, for my um my parents' dinner guests. I can't believe they let me do that. I must have been like five. You know, and
1: um, that's I, I'm a woman. W-O-N.
2: That was like five.
1: <laughs> oh, that, <laughs> that's
0: <laughs> so you would never. So you did it. So when did you take the break? That's gonna be. Your, so you said you knew all of your life you wanted to do. <laughs> when did you take the break? Did you move to Hollywood? What was the whole process? To LA or how did that go?
2: I, you know. um so what a big thing with my parents was education Mm -hmm. um my parents were both teachers um, for a while Uh, my mom taught spanish for like 40 years my dad taught architecture and then he became he had his own office but um they were really really adamant about us getting an education and so um you know even though i knew i was going to be an actor um, and I, I, danced for a while. I was, uh, I, I took ballet for a long time. So for a while there, I, I thought, you know, I knew I wanted to be on stage, but I thought maybe I would be a ballerina. Um, but that proved to be like, you know, at a certain age, you have to decide that that's all you're going to do. And I, um, I wanted my world to be a bit bigger than that. Um, so I stopped dancing and, um, Finished high school and then I went to college, and knowing I would be an actor. I, um, I, you know, I majored in literature, um, and then went to New York. Uh, I wanted, you know, I wanted to have something to bring to my acting. So I always loved reading, um, and in some ways, like when you do a play. Um, it's a lot like English class like you you sit around and you talk about the play. you talk about the themes of the play. you talk about the characters you you know the study of stories is really um, akin to to what we do as actors. It's like who are these people? what happened in their lives it's 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 this kind of psychology, history. you get to really dabble in all of those, arenas and um and so there is an intellectual sort of uh, if not academic um element to it but then there's also you know a really physical uh dimension to acting where you're embodying someone else you're walking like that person you're internalizing that person and i you know i i was always drawn to imagining what it is to be someone other than myself
0: that's 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 the amazing thing dave uh what thoughts next question
1: yeah i'm curious um how the last couple of years affected your career you know the covid and lockdown and mass and vaccinations all that stuff
2: um yeah it was um i mean you know it's amazing how um flexible uh i find theater people to be because of course theaters were dead right um i mean what we do is literally um get in a room with other people and tell stories you know share the same air so um it was amazing how you know we adapted and people did radio plays i did a podcast um Through the public theater, we did Romeo and Juliet in Spanish and English online. We did a, you know, recorded version of it. Um, Actually, Lupita Nyong'o played Juliet. I played her mom. So we got to do all of this incredible stuff um, that was, you know, sort of a hybrid of theater with um, with Zoom, really. I recorded a play all on Zoom where they literally sent all the actors green screens. Like I set up a green screen in my living room and then the theater put in the background afterwards. So it's kind of amazing to see how theater people just adapted. Um, TV and film was uh, a little different. I actually ended up getting a, a Netflix show, shooting a Netflix show in Vancouver last summer. So when things looked to be getting a little better before Omicron, I went to Vancouver. I had to quarantine there for two weeks, um, then get tested all the time. It was, a, it was a, a big strain on production, you know, cause film and TV production is already such, a labyrinth of different um schedules and just logistics so the people in production had this added task of having to test us all and i felt i felt really bad for them i mean i just was like on top of everything else now they have to worry about the plague you know um but they did it you know and um uh, it was great to shoot this, this show in Vancouver. Um, then I came and did an episode of bull, uh, on, uh, CBS, and we shot that in Brooklyn. And that was the same thing, you know, lots of COVID testing. Um, so I was just, I was really impressed by how my community like rose to the occasion and was like, we're going to do this hell or high water and we're going to f- figure out how.
0: That's the thing. And I was uh, also checking out, you know how to monitor and adjust because you were, you started in the soap operas, your career. So really tell how intense it is to shoot seasons for that because it's everyday type of thing. And you constantly have to be on the go. You have to monitor and adjust. You don't have time to do your lines. So probably that's why you're always needed to be in some sort of thing, because you know how to monitor and adjust when you audition and everything, because of what you dealt with. Theater and soap operas, I think are the best, probably training based places for actors. Wouldn't you agree? To really have to learn to go with the flow, because that's what directors are looking for. That's what producers are looking for when they're looking for a cast.
2: I always say like um, w- one of the skills that um, soaps gave me was, just getting up to bat, like get up, to, just get up and start hitting. Like, you know, you have to, you have to do it quickly. And it taught me that, it taught me like make a choice and just start start swinging, no, start swinging at the balls. And, and cause you have to, you have to go, go. We have to tape this show, a whole show in one day. And so now when I, you know, when I did that episode, and we do eight pages a day and people are you know rightfully you know kind of anxious about oh that's a lot of material after having done you know a whole show in one day i'm sort of like we can do this you can do it you know
0: yeah, definitely you, you can do it that's for sure and and that's where you've developed that skill set to now What we're going to talk about today because you, through that experience, being on all these amazing shows and, and experiences, now you're starring in Life After You. And uh, talk a little bit about that and how you're involved in this, not just acting, but how you, this is really a big deal for you, isn't it? I
2: mean, it's it's uh, it's a big deal deal in terms of yes for me personally and it's also um unfortunately you know it's such a huge problem right now Um, what the movie addresses is this uh, opioid epidemic um that has gotten so much worse since you know the story was inspired by the death of danny latterman uh in 2014 and it's now 2022 and unfortunately the story is more timely than ever um the batch of of heroin that Danny OD'd on was laced with fentanyl and um fentanyl is uh so uh ubiquitous now in all kinds of street drugs and um what our movies is really trying to do is ring that alarm bell and tell kids listen the drugs that are out there now are different than the drugs our generation used right um there is poison in it um that may kill you after one use um and and that is something that uh, I think everyone who made the movie, I know everyone who made the movie is is really passionate about getting that word out and starting that conversation. Um, Charlene Giannetti, one of the producers on the show, she um, is a journalist and she interviewed Linda Latterman, who is Danny's mother, and um, after Danny O'Deed. And Linda and her husband Tito found their son, a 19, their 19 year old son, in their home in his room after he had OD'd. Um, and about a month after that happened, um, she wrote a post, a Facebook post in the middle of the night because uh, she didn't know what else to do. Every time she closed her eyes, she would see her son's face. Um, when the way she the way she saw his the way she, he looked when when she found him and so she wrote this post and it went viral and so linda ended up writing a, a short a short book called life after you what your death from drugs leaves behind and it really is meant to scare the crap out of kids um it's you know it's It's meant to say, look, this is what happens literally your sister and your brother need to write your obituary. You know, these, these are the things that will happen to your family. Um, and Charlene, after interviewing Linda came to me, she had known my work as an actress from TV. And she said, I want you to play Linda. I, I know nothing about film, film production or screenplay writing, but we have to tell this story, um, as a film so that more people hear it. And I don't know what got into me. Well, I do. I met Linda. And, and after hearing her talk, I, I I was very inspired by how she said that she continued to talk to her son. Um, and that made me think, well, what if we told the story in a more um, less traditional way, less like, well, this happened and then this happened, but more emotionally, what was the mother, what was Linda's journey in terms of, um, letting her son go. She was in such complete and utter shock. She was so, uh, uh, at a loss when he died. She, she really had no idea what he was up to. So this film is, uh, is telling the story of her att- her trying to come to terms with how could this have happened um so in the movie um she continues to talk to danny um and he continues to be presence in the film um so i asked charlene i said can i write this screenplay can i try to write this screenplay i had i had never written a screenplay before um I have written plays um short stories but um yeah so i started writing it um with the woman who ended up directing it um sarah schwab we co-wrote it um and and shot it right before the pandemic
1: wow. yeah. this is powerful dave isn't it yeah you know um it takes a lot of trust because they're just going to think that uh, you're just trying to scare me, you know, and uh, um, and I agree, you need some kind of creative, new, never done before way of communicating. And, you know, Hollywood is a creative entity. Uh, if anyone came up with one, they can.
2: Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, writing the the screenplay, wow, that was really going into the woods and uh trying many different avenues we, we we went off in many different directions um to try to find the right way really as as you were just saying the question is how do we get through to kids how do we penetrate that mm-hmm. that divide right between um because we were all kids we remember how it was where you know there's this code there's this code of you know you don't tell the adults no. um no. and how do we um try different tactics to try to warn um warn them um without alienating them without pushing them too far away oh
0: And that's what you're doing is such a powerful thing. And I remember watching American greed with this guy that was doing it on the dark web selling opioids, but they were laced with fentanyl and different. He didn't care about the specific drug. And, you know, it was really dangerous. So, you know, people think, Hey, I'm just getting something. It's gonna be a painkiller. I can drink with alcohol. Everything's gonna be fine. And they're getting it from the dark web and that dark web could lead to an overdose. Or you know, buying it on the streets—you just never know—and that's why you got to be careful with any of this stuff. Because we all know opioids are addictive, but add fentanyl to the mix, and it's a deadly. deadly, It can sometimes it can make you sick. Sometimes it could be nothing happens, but another person, they're dead, and it doesn't matter what age or whatever situation. I'm glad you're bringing light to this because the news doesn't want to bring light to this stuff. They talk about the opioid addiction, but they don't talk about the drug addiction and the process and how many things are laced with fentanyl, even marijuana. You just don't know. You got to be careful. And I'm glad you're bringing this movie out for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Without getting political, you know, it all comes across our southern border and nobody seems to want to do anything about it. (laughs) Okay. That's
0: Dave's comment. And he did get full. Okay. So let's go right now to the care. care, uh, Dave, your question uh, regarding caregiving.
1: Yeah, so my wife, 25 years ago, we had a we're married for 47 years. About halfway through, she complained oh. about a headache that she had for like four days, and she was going to go to the doctor, but then uh, you know it turned into a stroke. She lost her speech, became paralyzed, um, and we grieved for the last uh, for the next two years, I should say, and we decided that hey, you know. Life hands you lemons, turned into lemonade. And so, we reinvented ourselves. And and she decided to do everything she did before. She was very talented across between Martha Stewart and Wonder Woman, and um, you know, a gourmet cook and interior decorator, a wedding coordinator, etc. So she's doing it all with one arm and one leg tied behind her back and duct tape over her mouth, in essence, because she can't speak verbally. And she just makes all us normal people look like whiners and complainers. So I go around. The world yeah. and the country speaking on uh stages and uh, been on 52 tv shows just helping people uh to survive because 30 percent of caregivers die before their loved ones do my question to you is uh, how has caregiving touched your life or do you fear that it will one day um
2: it's a really good question um my, my father actually um, fell uh, this December, and um, it caused this whole spiral of events um, that all, knock on wood, ended up well. But speaking of my sisters, my sisters and I came together to figure out how to support him. Um, I ended up going to be with him. He had broken his hip and Do you know, it was the best Christmas of my life, spending that time in my dad's um, uh, nursing facility. He was in a rehab facility. Uh, They were in lockdown because of COVID. It was, you know, but my dad was so vulnerable. He was so open. He, you know, I I felt like I got to take care of him. And that was a gift, which I, I never, I never expected that. I I was so surprised that like it was a gift to be able to, to be physically intimate with him in a way I I never had been before. Um, It was, it was, it was a lot and you only imagine what it is uh, long-term to do that with someone. Um, you know, I got him on a plane, my boyfriend, and I got him on a plane, um, uh, to Seattle. And now he's at, uh, in Seattle, um, where my, my other sister lives and she's really taking care of him now. Um, but thank God that there's three of us who can, um, we all have different abilities too. And, and so we can trade off like you do this and I'll do this. And having a network of support is a huge plus um but it really made me grateful for the things that i took for granted before um and um and i remain grateful
1: (laughs) maybe you can send your sister to our online support center caregiverdave.com it's got bunch of gifts, you know i've written books i've got podcasts i've got videos and
0: and here's you got a really popular facebook page yeah thirty four
1: thousand know, facebook yeah, followers
0: really engaged group check it out now uh where can we find the film and stuff and watch it i know there's youtube right now for the preview when's when's it coming out so people can check well, it out.
2: actually is available for um pre purchase is that what it's called i think so on uh apple um apple itunes um one of the producers just emailed me about this because i asked him that very thing um he told me it's going to be in a hundred percent of uh households um so you can pre-order it on apple tv itunes um i think it's on pay-per-view um, basically if you have cable TV, you can, um, rent it.
1: That's great.
2: And then it'll be streaming in like three months. It'll be streaming, I believe on Netflix, Hulu, all of those.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations with the work that you're doing such great work. Any other projects going on right now? You're staying busy. You said you're filming Netflix last year and different things. Can anything you could tell us about a project coming up for you?
2: so the the netflix show that i shot in vancouver is called keep breathing okay. keep breathing it's a netflix show that should come out in like august i think um and it's a lot of fun it's All a right. lot of fun any other projects or that's
0: pretty much it right now you're staying busy i'm sure
2: i'm staying busy i also just recorded a uh, a radio play another radio play uh called Kisses through the glass, and it will be available uh, on the Two Rivers Theater Company website. Okay, that's something else.
0: You really have a good voice, so I can tell how you're good for that radio. I could see listening to you read to me to the way just you—you you have that voice. I can tell. All right, so appreciate it. Work me, follow you on social media. Best place to connect to you on social. Where can we go? Where are you? So-
2: I have an Instagram, which is all lowercase. It's my name with an underscore between the first and last. So lowercase Florencia underscore Lozano, lowercase.
0: Excellent. And for those Narco fans, go back and check her out when she was Narco, some different things. And yeah, I was reading some of the places. Your Wikipedia is pretty impressive. So continued success in everything you're doing. And this project, I definitely Want to learn more and hear more what's going on. This is a tremendous project. We got to let people know the dangers of taking things that, guess what, are not coming from huh, the right sources because it could be your last chance of life. So I appreciate you stopping by.
2: Of course. Thank you guys so much. All
0: right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. That was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment here on the Neil Haley Show for Television Radio. Take care, guys. countdown oh it started now so the recording so you'll send it to me dave after okay all right all
1: right we transfer
0: all right yes we transfer song countdown in five four three two one hi everyone and welcome and we're back to the neil haley show here on the caregiver dave celebrity segment and i'm excited to welcome the program caregiver dave nassani dave what's (laughs) going on man how are you
1: I'm doing awesome. Uh, got over my Omnicron, and my energy is coming back, and I'm in Southern California, and it's sunny. It just doesn't get any better than that. Exactly. And I have
0: on, uh, as our guest today, Peter Kleins. He is a New York Times bestselling author, Yay. author of Broken Room. How are you, Peter? Thanks for stopping by, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing pretty good. Uh- all right. So I'm going to just jump right into this because it's a mixture of horror. I hear stranger things. I'm liking when I hear stranger things because I love stranger things, to tell you the truth. But let's learn a little bit about you, your background as an author and how that journey began, because I think one of the things everyone wants that New York Times best-selling author uh, moniker. I think that if any author, if you went and asked them, you know, best-selling author would be their first thing. The New York Times would be the one that say if I could say I'm a New York Times bestselling author. So how did that journey begin as a writer?
1: And I add one more thing to that, Neil, too. Uh, Sell a million books.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, Honestly, I I have probably the absolute worst path
1: anyone could follow to
3: becoming a successful author. Um, There's there's no rhyme or reason to it at all. (laughs) Uh, I've, like a lot of people, you know, who write, I've wanted to write since I was a little kid. I've told stories since I was a little kid. Um, but like for the longest time, it never occurred to me that this was something people could actually do for a living. So I always just thought it was like this weird side dream that I'd, I'd go be an aerospace engineer or something and, or a high school teacher, and maybe just write stories when I could. Uh, but yeah, I actually really enough got out of college with a degree I could not use at the time moved randomly to California from New England, uh, ended up in the film industry, got out of the film industry, started writing about the film industry. Um, And then somewhere in there transitioned just writing fiction full time. I I sold my first novel to a small press, my first four novels to a small press. uh, And then I got picked up by Random House and my seventh book. Eighth book was the one that hit the New York Times specialized. Am
0: I counting that right? Uh, I think I'm counting well, that right. So you kept <laughs> writing and your publisher was happy with you and then your fans started to build up. Would you say fan base has a lot to do with it at times too? Well, I mean, building that fan. I guess it's
3: it's it's such a tough thing to say because you can it's possible to build your fan base with your first book. Um, you know, you look at somebody, uh look at Andy Weir, for example first book becomes a smash runaway hit and he he'd written novels before that or i think he wrote a novel before that he wrote a very popular short story before that but the martian was just this he came out of nowhere as people like to say even though he'd been writing for years Mm -hmm. um i you know went the other way i just had like this very small build-up 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 i did not really have a a breakout hit i guess in any way until my fourth novel which was a horror adventure mystery thing called 14 uh but I, there is no one path i wish i could really say it's and i did this and became a new york times best-selling author i used well, the you, word you, melon baller you, you, three pre, times
0: so, so you can create that course right how to become a new york times best-selling author by peter clines now Any, anyone who's selling
3: that course is lying to you <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there is the course but you could google it right now Oh, AI absolutely.
3: I'm, I'm sure there are a dozen courses like that. There are courses and webinars and and how-to books, and they're all crap. tossing.
1: <laughs> so you're a New York Times bestselling author. Every author aspires to be that. I'm an author. I certainly am. I've got a book coming out. But uh, a lot of mystery around what it takes. Does it take uh, book sales? Does it take you know, uh, a popular political uh, topic or staying away from a negative political topic. I mean, what's your opinion?
3: I, I think, again, it, there is no one path. I, a friend of mine, I'll be polite, not name them, but they're also New York Times bestselling author. And when they heard that, that they had hit the New York Times bestseller list, they were ecstatic because they were figuring like, oh my God, this book took off. I must have sold you know, half a million copies. How many, was it half a million? Was it a quarter million? Was it was half a million. How many million did we sell? And like, you sold like like 9,000. It was a yeah, slow week. that's what I'm talking about. That, that's just it though. It's, it's honestly, it's best example. Do you remember there was a story at the start of the pandemic about these two guys who had made a short film and they rented out a theater and bought all the seats And because of this, they were number one at the box office because nothing else was released that week. So they were the number one movie in America.
1: So they manipulated.
3: With one theater screen, with like 80 seats, 100 seats, I think. something, Something very small like that. But they were number one in America. They didn't, it wasn't really manipulated. It's just that number one sort of depends on a lot of other factors. So I hit number four. Um but it was also a very weird week because I hit number four and my book had been out for like three months at that point. Mm. And then just randomly one week I hit number four on the New York Times bestseller list. The book ahead of me, I think was uh, crap. I just blank, but it was another book that had like been out for a while. And I I have no idea what happened.
1: So the perfect storm.
3: Yeah, it's just some. It sometimes you can hit the New York Times bestseller with a book that's selling like mad. Sometimes you hit it with, you know, just because it was a slow week. I guess in my case, um, I have a friend who is written tons of original stuff that's amazing, and he hit the New York Times bestseller with a movie adaptation he did. Wow. So, I I don't think there is anything. The the thing I would always tell people really is don't. Don't worry about hitting the New York Times for list. Don't worry about that. Don't don't try to make something or craft it for that purpose. Just write the the best story you can. Write the story yeah, you want to tell. Agree. Because if you're writing a really good story that has a lot of heart behind it, has a lot of feeling behind it, that's what's going to connect with people, and then they'll buy. Your your four thousand copies if it's just a <laughs> <you> week. <know. laughs> yeah.
0: So, is there a club for it now? Once you become a New York Times bestselling author, you, is there a club of people? Because not everyone a, reaches the. If there yeah. is, I have not been invited to it. <laughs> you have a friend in it, but the, the, he, he's not telling you yet, right? I've got a, I've
3: got a couple friends at this point who have, and it's it's <laughs> still weirds me out. A that I personally know a bunch of people in the New York Times bestselling list, and then. I sort of stop and think, wait, I'm a person on the New- who hit the New York Times bestsellers list, which is is still bizarre to me.
1: Yeah. When yeah. I see that in
3: print or something, it makes no sense.
1: And I know a friend who's the New York Times number one bestselling author, but how does she make it? Well, Oprah just happened to endorse her book, you know. Yeah, it's that's just it. It's it's so weird and so random. And
3: I I guess I always expected when I was like starting out, when I was a kid that it would change everything you know that i I'd, I'd have a gold plated car or something now that i'm <laughs> or,
1: just, like, <laughs> or at least a pink cadillac or, or something yeah you know that there you'd get a
0: plaque or something <laughs> now you're going to get the license plate right new york times exactly all right so let's talk about the book now i mean so is this a series or is it or you're right uh, of this, you've written eight books of is it a series or is this is this book that you're we're, we're talking about right now is more uh the first of a potential series? Um, I never try and th- I never
3: th- I shouldn't say never I very 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 rarely when I write a book think could this be the start of a series? Um, because again, I think that's sort of like shooting yourself in the foot and asking for trouble. If I like, um, I know everyone says like, oh, but. Publishers want to see a series. Publishers want to see a series. My personal belief and from talking with editors and stuff, what I think they want is they want to see a book with serious potential. That they like this book. It's a good solid book. But if you wanted to tell another story set in this world, another story with these characters, you could. Um, I don't think they want you to send in your first novel and it has to be continued on the last page and you haven't answered anything Um, so all that said, I just wrote this book as a standalone. Um, like a lot of my books, there's a couple little weird Easter eggs in it, like hints to other things, but, uh, it is a mostly complete standalone. It is a complete standalone. You don't need to read any of my other books. I currently have no plans to write another book with these characters, but, you know, never say never. If, if, if come... Release day, this book sells 10 million copies. I'm sure the publishers might have different opinions on if. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's kind of where it is now. It it was a a story that popped in my head, and I wanted to tell it. And I, I'd actually been telling my agent I was going to write a different book. And so when I turned this in, he got it, and he was like, "What is this?" And I was like, just read it. Just read it. You'll like it. So when you
1: were younger, you said you liked to uh, write and all of that stuff. Uh, Were you writing fiction or were you telling true stories? And then when you had your job uh, in the film industry and you were writing about that, was there fiction in that? Was it just all reality? How did this all start?
3: Um, Well, when I was a little kid, it was mostly what what I think we would today call fan fiction stuff. Um, I mean, I started out, I, I was of the Star Wars generation and <laughs> I had, um, I would set up every night, I still remember this, my mom still remembers this, I would set up like little dioramas with all my action, my Star Wars action figures. And every day, like every night before I went to bed, I would explain to her how everything had changed, that this guy had moved over here, and this had happened, and he saw him, and now this guy's running that way, and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then very I, I,
1: interested, of course.
3: Oh, my mom was a saint, is a saint, because she she would listen to me go on and on and none of this stuff has any interest to her. She is not a sci-fi fan. She's not, you know, in any of this. And she would sit there and nod and encourage me and tell me it was really good when I was writing this bizarre stuff that I think she had no clue, you know, what to make of it. And at one point I found she had this massive electric typewriter uh, from when she'd been a student and like gone to finishing school and i found this thing and now i know i was writing real stories because they were typed so you know i'm nine using this massive typewriter it's oh. one of those things where like you turn it on and it's like humming and shaking the whole desk right you know you can, you like hear the power up like when you turn it on it's like
1: were you a uh, uh, only child I was not
3: uh my brother and I are almost exact opposites my brother is the sports nut uh he's really into music uh so we weren't doing much he would be outside doing stuff and I would just be sitting at the desk typing away so uh when I got into the film industry that was actually a weird stumbling thing but I was actually doing art stuff I was a prop master for many years on a bunch
1: of movies and tv shows um so did you and make I would have fiction stories uh, during that time or, or I, I would actually I
3: tried I tried to write scripts during it. I wrote scripts for a couple shows I was working on and tried to show them to the right people. Uh, I what tried, shows did you what shows did you work on? Um, I worked on probably the two biggest shows that people would know that I worked on. Uh, I worked on a USA show called Silk Stockings. Which I know like, that show. I
0: remember it was that like a show.
3: sexy police crime show. Yeah, uh, that ran for nine years, eight years, uh, and I worked on that for about three years. Uh, I also worked on a show called Veronica Mars. I've heard that. Too. Yep, uh, and probably the only other thing I have worked on that people would really have heard of, if not watched, probably deliberately, was a bad superhero show called Nightman. Okay. Um, and if you didn't hear, hear that don't worry about it you should feel very relieved that you've never heard of it I didn't I didn't so there
0: you go so let's yeah. talk about you know what I'm always interested in is you know why horror you're why is horror John you're interested in horror I don't know
3: if it's an interest I think it's just the way I tell stories I think uh I I think a lot of people aren't so much interested in like Believe it or not, I don't watch a lot of horror. Like I, I read horror novels, but I read a lot of other stuff too. I read comedy, I read sci-fi, I read mysteries. I'm a big Jack Reacher fan. Um, but I don't know. I just whenever I whenever I sit down, things almost invariably start spinning towards weird and creepy. And you know, no matter how I, I have tried again and again to just write, okay, I'm just gonna write a straight sci-fi novel. And whenever I do just all this weird little darkness creepy stuff starts leaking in and I don't know I guess it's it's partly just the way my brain's wired for for telling stories that these are this is the reaction I like getting from people this is the you know it's the raw moments I guess that I like that stick that stick with me and stuff so Mm.
1: Where do you find the time to read, uh, you know, when you're not writing? Uh, do you read mm-hmm. while you're writing? I mean, how much of your time is actually reading other people's stuff?
3: Fair amount. I mean, I try to read at least an hour or two every day. Um, Just because you love know, it
1: or you have a motive? Because I love it.
3: Well, I mean, it's 50-50. I also have like the stack of like, all right, I, I need to do a blurb for this person and a blurb for this person. And I'm helping this friend you know, just skimming through their book and giving them notes because they've helped me out at times. Um, And there's stuff I like, you know, there's stuff that, oh my God, look, they finally made a Baku Banzai novel. You know, they did this, they did this. And those are things that I scoop up. I have friends who write books I love. You know, there's like, I have my book coming out March 1st, but like there's five other books coming out this month that I've been like eagerly awaiting from different authors I know. Mm. So I just... I, I also have the advantage I am doing this full time at this point. Yeah. That's you're, true. Reading, you're, reading more than,
1: you're reading more than just fiction, right? I read everything. I read fiction,
3: I have nonfiction, um, I I read articles, I I go through so much stuff all the time because everything interests me. I just I yeah. I if if it's one of those things where like you look back and you think, man, if I'd known where I'd be now, I would have done so much more in college. I would have taken this random course and that random course and I want, I, cause I just want to know stuff. And I'm very lucky that I have a lot of very educated friends. I know, you know, doctors, I know genetic engineers, I know biochemists and it's fun talking to them, but it's also fun, like they're, they're great for research. Yeah. I can call people up. I, I know a guy who's an expert on AI in computers. And he and I actually had a whole talk recently about okay. Do you know what a Turing test is? If you're familiar with the idea, um, okay. A Turing test is this idea that was come up with a while back. Essentially, it's how do you tell if a computer is thinking or not? Okay, as opposed to is it just giving you sort of pre programmed responses? And I had this wild idea of could you apply a Turing test to a ghost? So, is the ghost actually conscious, or is the ghost just sort of repeating, echoing things from its life? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And well, and I know pe- I know people that I get to sit and have conversations like that with.
0: And, that's fantastic.
3: <laughs> well, what's your family life like? Uh, you married? You got kids? No kids. Uh, I'm not married, but I've been with the same partner now for we're coming up on eighteen years together.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and they're compatible so, with your writing habits and uh... <laughs> she is
3: she's also a writer um and that is how we met we met w- weirdly enough at the wake for a friend's cat <laughs> and we had been writing for i mentioned i I wrote about the movie industry for a while we both worked at the same magazine and we just never met each other oh wow um so cuz you know it's like you work for a magazine i was always out in the field she was usually in the office and we were both writers and we met, started talking to each other that night. And like the next day we were emailing each other, like, hey, had a good time last night. And then, uh, you know, here we are. coming Come right, on, so tell weeks. us
0: the quick premise of the book. Uh, so people that can pick it up, uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Quick premise
3: of the book. Uh, essentially the book is about a former secret agent named Hector who has become very dis- who became very disillusioned with his job dropped out, fell off the grid, and one day this little girl shows up basically claiming to have been sent by one of Hector's old companion's friends. And Hector's immediately suspicious because this guy who she claims she talked to just a couple days ago has been dead for seven years. Um, at which point she explains like, oh, thank God, you know, he was worried I'd, ha- I'd be the one to have to break it to you. And what we come to find out is through a whole thing that is a big part of the book is the ghost of this dead secret agent is stuck in Natalie's head. And oh, wow! So Natalie can talk to him, hear him, he can tell her stuff. Um, and basically, he has sent Natalie to track down Hector to help her. And because the people who did this to her are trying
0: to get her back, see, so I think that's in- really interesting. Have you thought of any of your books to be a uh? A- to utilize for a potential series or anything or any of the or a movie have you hasn't I mean
3: (laughs) um yeah I mean I'd love it obviously if they did very very funny story when I started writing this the person I was picturing as Hector was Pedro Pascal and I got about three four chapters into this and it's like yeah oh my god Pedro Pascal would be fantastic at this and I could totally see him like protecting a little kid being that kind of badass guy and Literally about a week after I said this, because I was like, "And he's in that new Mandalorian show that's coming out, yeah." And the Mandalorian came out. I'm like, "God damn it!" No, he's never going to do my movie, <laughs> but I mean, that's the dream. Uh, I have some things that are kind of in the works right now, actually, that I don't think I can talk about yet. I'm sure you can't uh, talk
0: about it yet. but yeah,
3: that's the But, that's but, the it, but like, it's the dream,
0: you know that. Hey, that's, that's, that's what's great is you're doing what you love. And you're enjoying what it is and and really seeing this whole process of people thinking they aren't reading books yet. They still are. And it's great. And more and more books are being written. And people need to definitely stay the course like you have. And then you got that opportunity as New York Times bestselling author. And then that will lead to more and more opportunities. All right, Dave, here's Dave's final question. Why we call him Caregiver Dave in the Sandy. Go ahead, Dave.
1: (laughs) Excuse me. So I became a caregiver uh, twenty five years ago. My wife had a stroke, lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And I instantly was thrown into this world and and I realized how hard it was and and I was burning out, grieving, all of that stuff. And we finally got it together. She reinvented herself, and uh, I reinvented myself. and now I, help other caregivers stay alive because 30% of them actually die before their loved ones do. And many more become sicker than the ones they care for eventually needing a caregiver of their own. So I started caregiverdave.com. It's an online support group and I've appeared on 51 TV shows just uh, talking about how to stay alive. You know, if you're a caregiver, put your mask on first and I've spoken all over the country, all over the world, actually. My question to you, Peter, is um, how has, caregiving affected your life you know with any parents grandparents i don't know
3: i i've been extremely fortunate that most of my family we are disgustingly (laughs) long-lived um and i i'm in this very weird position this is the actual truth i've only had like four relatives die in my entire life oh wow um and i i have some ancient relatives my i still have both my parents i have uh, I've lost one aunt and my grandmother, and that's pretty much been it on that side of my family. Mm. Uh, but
1: Did I it actually, go quickly, or was it a long, prolonged? Uh...
3: It was actually pretty quick for both. Of that's the place. My, my aunt went quickly and with a lot of grace. My grandmother um, had complications from surgery, and a week later, was. Um, but both times were very peaceful for them. Uh, so I've been very fortunate that way. Um, but I think it's th- in this day and age, I think that's a wonderful thing you're doing because it is, I see looming crisis for a lot of us that I think yeah. a lot more people are are one way or another going to be either either needing a caregiver or finding themselves in that position of being yeah. a caregiver.
1: Do you know any um, caregivers who are going through this stuff?
3: Not at the moment. I used to. I actually had a friend in college, two friends, who helped take care of another student who was in a wheelchair um, and needed assistance. Um, How'd they handle it? They did fairly well. They, I think for everyone involved, it was the sort of thing that they were they they were we were all young enough. I mean, I was friends with him too, that none of us considered it in any way, I guess. That I think, and you would probably have a much better perspective of this than I do. I think for some people, it's probably very. and this sounds like it sounds like such a cheap word, but just rough to go from having a full, you know, mobile, vibrant life, and then suddenly finding out, oh, I'm bedridden now. Oh, right. I'm, you know, that that exactly. it, that that besides the whatever has has done this to you just the idea that it had the idea that it has happened to you that the the change of life is just as probably destructive for some people as
0: whatever disease accident condition has caused it yeah so all right okay so caregiverdave.com again we can purchase your book it's available march right march 5th releases march 1st March march 1st yep Everywhere. march everywhere all right fantastic all right. So March 1st, everywhere. And do you have a website too? Uh, I'm at PeterKleinz.com.
3: I am Peter Kleins on Twitter, Peter Kleins on Instagram. Very easy to find.
0: No, oh, you're fantastic. It was great talking to you. Good discussion. I guess, we, you, you know, uh, the, a course, how to become a New York Times bestselling author, we're finding out. No, that's not the best path. It's just stay the course, keep going, and I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having All me. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks appreciate you, it. All right, that was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Guys, take care. You can stop the recording, Dave. Okay.